this week on the Backtable podcast. Once that's done conceptually, and if you have to go with the with the theory, then you will have basically no possibility of this fluid recollecting. And when you have fluid uh, or component of this plunging ranula that's kind of disconnected with the sublingual gland, I often recommend and tell patients that, listen, all of this is not going to go away with the surgery. We're going to remove, we're going to focus on removing the sublingual gland, but then I may have to come from the outside and just aspirate the fluid because we know that it will hopefully not recollect in the future. everybody, welcome to the Backtable ENT Podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Cook Medical's otolaryngology head and neck surgery clinical specialty strives to provide otolaryngologists with minimally invasive solutions to address unmet needs. Areas of focus include head and neck, otology, and laryngology, with products ranging from a full suite of interventional silendoscopy products and the Doppler blood flow monitoring system to the BioDesign otologic repair graft and the Hercules 100 transnasal esophageal balloon. For more information, visit cookmedical.com forward slash otolaryngology. Now back to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Backtable ENT podcast. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I'm here today with my bestie and my partner in crime, my co-host, Dr. Ashley Agan. How are you today, Ash? Hey, Gopi. I'm doing wonderful. It's a Sunday morning. I'm behind the mic. I'm across the screen from you. It can't get any better, It's my favorite thing to do on the weekends. (laughs) I'm I'm pumped for our topic today. It's going to be a great show. Let's introduce our guest. Absolutely. So we are lucky today to have Dr. Rohan Walvakar. He is a clinical professor of otolaryngology, the vice chair and Mervyn L. Trail Endowed Chair in Head and Neck Oncology at Louisiana State University in New Orleans. He's the director of the Salivary Endoscopy Service for the ENT department. Dr. Walvakar has been an innovator at heart. He's the co-director of the Medical Innovation Design Studio at LSU and he has innovated procedures and clinical practices in silendoscopy, a highlight being the development of the Walvacar salivary stint and being first to describe the use of the da Vinci robot for transoral submandibular stone management. He's also founder and CEO of Endorse, a team engagement software application. And he's here today to talk to us about the management of the plunging ranula. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Gopi. Thank you, Ashley, for having me today. I'm, I'm excited to speak with you and, and also to you know talk about plunging ranulas. <laughs> Can you first tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your practice? Oh, absolutely. So I think, you know, Ashley summed it well. Uh, my basic training was always in head and neck oncology. I trained both in India as well as at the University of Pittsburgh. I did like a year-long fellowship with my chairman here, Dr. Dan Nuss, um, in skull-based surgery. But what my practice has evolved into is a lot of salivary gland management for uh, both benign and malignant disorders. And salendoscopy is a big portion of that. So you get to see really interesting things as a result of this, uh, of this evolution. Uh, the other thing that's really sort of centered to my practice and I'm, that I'm passionate about is pediatric thyroid disease. So I manage most of the pediatric thyroid and parathyroid at both our uh, sort of uh, key hospital sites uh, in Baton Rouge and New Orleans, 
Lady of the Lake uh, Children's Hospital and Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And then, of course, like, you know, my, my passion's always been with um, ablative head neck oncology. So as the vice chair, I get to, you know, help steer our program uh, with respect to head neck oncology. And I love doing still ablative work. <clears throat> Obviously, I was never trained in flaps, so that's something that I don't do. Um, but um, it's just amazing to me what we are capable of doing today as uh, otolaryngologists. Yeah. So wow. in your spare time, though, tell us a little bit about the indoor sap. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you know, when you talk about spare time, I always kind of uh, <laughs> reference this uh, quote by my fellowship director, Dr. Uh, Robert Ferris. I remember him being so busy and asking him, like, Dr. Ferris, like, how do you manage, um, you know, all the basic science stuff that you do, as well as the the clinical work that you do? How much time do you spend in the clinic and how much time do you spend in the lab? And he was like 75% and 75%. <laughs> so, so I think that's kind of, you know, the story of my life. I mean, I've always been driven by, you know, trying to do things differently and, and trying to uh, problem solve. And so Endorse was kind of a, um, you know, a consequence of that. I really feel like we, as a healthcare professionals as a whole, uh, don't take the time to kind of celebrate the things that we do well, you know. And yeah. so Endorse is just a positive, real-time recognition platform that I created for hospitals about five, six years ago. And now we have about 20,000 healthcare professionals on the platform. We, you know, help uh, celebrate the culture in about 15 to 16 hospitals um, spread across the country. Wow, that's amazing. Congrats, yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you. Very, very cool. Well, I'm I'm super enthusiastic about benign salivary gland disease. So very much looking forward to our talk today. Let's get into it. How do these patients with plunging ranulas present to you or ranulas in general? Um, you know, what, what are these patients looking like when they're walking into your office? Yeah, Ashley, as, as you know, as somebody who does a lot of benign salivary gland as well, uh, you know, these kinds of, these patients are rare, but they're not rare enough that you will never see them in your practice. So a lot of my residents and even some of my colleagues um, have questions about this particular problem. You, most of the patients present, obviously, you know, in a varied age group. I see some um, in, you know, in their teens, uh, sometimes younger, and then and some, you know, in adults. And I think most of them present with, uh, you know, just kind of a the, the classical, uh, the the classical story is I have a, like a bubble that forms in my mouth uh, that uh, ruptures and then reforms again. And when they, when you hear that, you have to start thinking about you know, either an oral or a plunging granula. And then, of course, if it's truly a plunging granula, you'll have somebody present with a neck mass. And that does not always need to be associated with an oral finding. Uh, that's important to note. Um, and, and that makes the sort of discussion with the patient as well as the thought process around management quite, uh, you know, intricate. And we'll get to that when we, you know, address those questions. Do the patients with a plunging granula have histories um, of infection or saladinitis or or is it just, oh, I just noticed this kind of pop up on my neck for the last couple of weeks and it yeah, doesn't hurt? That's a Nothing good happens. question. That's a great question. So I think it, I think as, as far as previous infections, it's, I would say about 25% of them present in that fashion where they have some like very bad infect, uh, a history of an acute abscess or something of that sort you know, that has alerted them to this condition. Most of them present with a more sort of a indolent, benign, uh, you know, salivary gland swelling, benign in terms of its clinical presentation, not in terms of the pathology. 
and and they just say they have a swelling in the neck that uh, they have noticed that comes and goes. You know, that's kind of what I've seen. And as far as pain, there there's not a you know a significant you know pain compared to you know the patients that are coming in with like a true acute sialadenitis. You're right. I mean, the pain as far as pain is concerned, uh, there is uh, there is the pain component is very low, but the pressure component is there. So a lot of patients will uh, complain that they feel like there's pressure in the neck. They'll sometimes feel like there's pressure in the ear. Uh, some sort of radiating sensations to the to the neck, and all of that can be attributed to the swelling. And again, let's not also forget appearance. Appearance is a big deal. I mean, a lot of these young teens and and, and adults as well. Everybody, I think, if you had like a big lump in your neck, you know, you'd want to you want to address it, and it's concerning. So is it is this okay to go ahead and get into your differential when these patients come in? What are you usually kind of thinking about and? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, you know, it depends on the age of the patient. I think the younger the patient, you're thinking about like, you know, more sort of embryological, you know, conditions like dermoids and uh, duplication cysts and things like that. Uh, the older the patients get, then you have to think about like and sort of middle-aged teen patients to uh, adults, lymphangiomas, lympho- lymphovascular malformations. Again, you can have a singular sort of submandibular cysts that I've seen happen in this area, lipomas, a lot of different kind of pathology can occur in the um, submandibular triangle. So you have to think about all of those conditions. And then of course, you know, you never rule out malignancy just uh, from uh, from an academic perspective. You know, a cystic swelling in the neck could be representative of a thyroid malignancy or something that's coming from the oropharynx. So you have to rule that out. Mm-hmm. And but as far as age, you know, these patients tend to be younger than our like typical like older neck mass patient. Like if I were, you know, in 100%. general, yeah, most yeah. most of them tend to be younger uh, in their teens or young adults, um, and that's the majority that you'll see in this age group. Having said that, I mean, you know, w- you know, we create problems, like you know. And while we're trying to fix problems with sal endoscopy, and more and more people are undergoing endoscopic salivary gland procedures and consequently transoral incisions, you are going to see a lot more ranulas because uh, when you start manipulating the submandibular duct and the minor salivary glands in that area, you could potentially injure the outflow tract to the sublingual gland. And so I've recently seen a patient uh, who has um, a floor of mouth ranula as a consequence of a a pretty extensive transoral mm-hmm. approach for management of stones, you know, and so this is this is going to happen even in the older group, and you you need to sort of keep that as a part of your differential. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Is there a percentage? Are there studies that show like follow up, or is this now we've been doing cell endoscopy for close to eight to ten years, and now I'm seeing these patients come in? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. In the I, I you know what is the Incidence of ranulas after endoscopic uh, or transoral procedures related to management of stones or stenosis uh, in the floor of the mouth. Um, I don't think there's a good number for that. It is something that is real and can happen. And so it should be a part of your discussion when you talk about, you know, your informed consent and possible complications. But in reality, I would say it's less than 0.5%. Now, it's also important to note that um, when you Think about making an incision in the floor of the mouth to get to the submandibular duct. 
the way the sublingual gland and the minor salivary glands interact with the submandibular duct is a very important thing. If you, you can, in many cases, after you make the submucosal incision, you can actually put the submandibular, uh, sublingual gland uh, sort of bluntly away from the duct. Okay. And, and if you do that, then your likelihood of injuring uh, the sublingual duct or the sublingual gland becomes less. So, you know, careful attention to technique at that time is really important. The important thing is not to think about getting the stone out. When you think about management of the floor of the mouth um, and you think about how do, I, how do you approach it as a way to prevent future complications after you make the incision in the mouth, you know, you have to make an attempt to move the sublingual gland away. Uh, you have to get through one layer of minor salivary glands, but then you can easily sort of bluntly dissect uh, the sublingual gland away uh, so that you don't injure the sublingual duct and the gland itself. And that can prevent the ranulas in the future. Now, there are no guarantees that this would, uh, this would happen, but at least you're reducing your chances of doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. And and before we move on, when you're doing that, do you prefer like using like you know a, like a like a blade instead of cautery? Like, does that matter when you're getting us you know removing a stone transorally because of yeah. potentially damaging you know the sublingual gland? Yes, uh, it's a very good question. I uh, I I detest bleeding. Uh, like. <laughs> So whenever I think about uh, using a blade in the floor of the mouth, it always kind of uh, it's, it creates an interesting reaction in me. Uh, so the way I navigate that situation is I will do a submucosal injection of local and, you know, epinephrine. Uh, but then I'll use the Colorado tip bovi on a very low setting, like maybe eight or 10. So that actually gives you a really clean cut when you go through or use it on a, on a cut rather than blend. Um, and then you can do the rest of the dissection bluntly. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so moving on to our patient with it's presenting with the ranula, what does your physical exam look like? Uh, what are you seeing and, and uh, what are you looking for? Honestly, the physical examination is very minimalistic. The main sort of components I'm looking for is um, I examine the floor of the mouth for um, uh, the patency of the submandibular duct. Okay. And one is can I visualize the papilla? Is it working? Because those are important things. Like if I do want to cannulate the duct for the procedure to, you know, maybe stent it just to, so that I know where the duct is, yeah. I know that it's not going to be an issue or whether it's working or not. I can counsel the patients accordingly. The second thing is obviously do a good bimanual palpation. Uh, you know, you can um, get good elimination and, and examine the floor of the mouth. And, and it's the, the best feeling is when you see that the true, the ranula or a blue translucent thing in the floor of the mouth, uh, that they, you know that your diagnosis is, you know, pretty much spot on. But sometimes you'll just look at the floor of the mouth and it'll, it'll appear normal. And, and then what you want to do is uh, sort of do a comparative examination, examine the normal side and see what the sublingual gland feels like. Then examine the abnormal side and see if you feel like a more, it's like slightly more bulky. That can give you a little bit of a um, cue as to whether this is truly a sublingual gland in origin. And then, of course, you, you bimanually examine it. If you have the ability to do an ultrasound in the office, that can be tremendously helpful. You know, and so you know, no harm in putting an ultrasound in the neck and, and just kind of getting a sense of, you know, is this fluid collection around the subling, submandibular gland? Uh, is the submandibular gland involved or no? It's very difficult to sometimes see the sublingual gland in these settings because there's a lot of fluid 
around it. But at least if you can examine the architecture of the submandibular gland, you'll know that it's not like a submandibular gland cyst, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it's a combination of things. I, I have an ultrasound in the in my office that I use pretty routinely for con, for situations like this. So I would definitely encourage you guys to, you know, at least whoever is listening or um, listens to this podcast to invest some time in learning how to do an ultrasound of the head and neck. Do you do an ultrasound even for anybody that has a intraoral component and the neck component or... Uh, is it part of your neck mass workup anyways? Or if you have an intraoral component and you can see the blue and that clinical, you know, picture fits what you're thinking, is that enough? Or do you feel like ultrasound is something that you always do as an intermediary step? No, I don't I don't believe in doing things uh, just because you have to do them. I just focus my examination and uh, interventions just to give me enough information to make a decision. So if I'm pretty confident that this is a plunging granula, I'm not going to, like, the ultrasound's not going to help me make that decision. Yeah. So, you know, I try to keep it as practical as possible. And then for the patients that don't have the intraoral component, you know, let's say it is the 10 or 12-year-old and, you know, there's that soft, uh, you know, left neck fullness um, in the submandibular space. What kind of imaging do you, would you recommend at that point? Would you still start with an ultrasound or when do you consider imaging like CT or MRI? I think almost always con- consider CT scan because it gives you kind of a global picture of the the space. And it also is a nice way to visually talk to patients about uh, describing what's exactly going on. I mean, when you have a floor of mouth component, it's very easy to talk to patients about what needs to be done, right? I mean, you oh, we need to remove the sublingual gland. This is exactly what I'm going to do. But when you have a cyst in the neck that has no connection whatsoever to the sublingual gland or the floor of the mouth, it's a very difficult discussion. And you almost have to educate patients about what are plunging, what are annulars, how do they plunge, and, and how do you then think about managing them. So having any sort of help in terms of providing visual representation of what you're trying to do is helpful. So I I would tend to always get a CT. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't gravitate towards MRIs in general. I'm not very good at reading them. So I prefer to do CT scans of the neck and my preference is one millimeter cuts with and without contrast. Sometimes in these kids, I might, the differential for me would be like, you know, lymphatic malformation, brachial cleft cysts, dermoid, and, and the management, like you said, is different. Uh, one can be potentially intraoral. The other one, I'm going to have to do something in the neck, more likely. Um, and my, you know, treatment options are a little different. Yeah. So, you know, depending on, I might sometimes, I feel like I was leaning a little bit more towards MRI because maybe that would give me a little bit more soft tissue distinction between some of those. Because then if I'm thinking of like a macrocystic lymphatic malformation, then there's other treatment options like sclerotherapy and other things. And so, I don't know. Sometimes I used to kind of, you know, yeah. think in my mind, which one do I want to get and, and yeah. why? But you have to get the one that you're comfortable getting. Yeah. You know, I think uh, you what you're comfortable reading and interpreting. For me, the CT scans are sort of the go-to scans. And what the CT scans allow me to see is when you examine the floor of the mouth area and you actually look at the sublingual fossa, if you can actually see a, if it's bilateral, then it's it's tough luck. You know, you have to make a decision. But let's say it's a unilateral problem. 
you can actually see on one side, the sublingual gland is nicely tucked away in that sublingual fossa. On the other side, you'll see that there is fluid around it. And yeah. that's like a telltale sign to me that yes, this fluid is coming from the granula. The other things that you look for on a scan is, you know, most other malformations and stuff, they have some sort of a structure to them, like they have a shape to them. So yeah. Ranulas will find any place to go. So it'll be very sort of irregular. Um, they will find like nooks and crannies to get into. So you'll have a very sort of weird shaped uh, collection of fluid of this hypodense fluid on the scan. And so that is another kind of sign to to tell you that, yeah, this is this this can't be anything else but a ranula. Yeah. Helpful. Yeah. And it, it just occurred to me that we kind of jumped into the patient presentation before we talked about like what is a ranula. Um, oh, can, yeah. can you t do your, you talked about your spiel to patients about, you know, what is a ranula? How does it plunge? You know, how do, can you just kind of tell us what your, what your patient's spiel sounds like? Yeah, absolutely. So, so <laughs> it's really difficult to describe to patients. And so this is how I usually tell my patients about ranulas. So I tell them that the sublingual gland is uh, this small gland that um, contributes to le less than 1% of saliva. But then, you know, when it gets obstructed or it gets injured for whatever reason, uh, it can really be troublesome. And so I, I talk to them about it being tucked between the mandible on one side and uh, you like you know, the mandible, the mandible is trying to elbow it in. And then the other side is the, the muscles of the, of, the, of the tongue that are kind of, you know, like really sandwiching this gland in the middle. And so when the glands gets obstructed or it gets injured, it starts leaking saliva because it has nowhere to go, right? And so saliva leaks out of this gland because it's over capacity and now it's kind of flowing into the floor of the mouth. And I t tell patients that saliva in, the, in its normal space, in the mouth, in the digestive system is very helpful. But outside of that, and we know that from our, you know, laryngectomy fistulas and things like that, it's very irritant. So I graphically tell them that if I take a syringe, fill it with saliva and inject it into my muscles, what it's going to do is going to create an intense reaction. So when saliva leaks out from the sublingual gland, the body sort of tries to create a reaction around it, uh, you, almost trying to sort of shepherd it into trying to stop the saliva from going at, uh, to different places. And that what that looks like is a pseudocyst, okay? So it's basically a wall of inflammatory cells that really don't have any integrity, but it's just a way for them to sort of curb that infection. All right. And so if that's limited to the floor of the mouth, then you see a cyst in the floor of the mouth. But at some point in time, this is just a free-flowing water. It's like a leaking faucet. And uh, sometimes the, the fluid will find uh, weaknesses in the, in the floor to be able to escape into the neck. And these tend to be the neurovascular porch in the mylohyoid muscle, right? And and you actually see these weaknesses or, uh, or these areas of uh, dehiscence uh, while you do a level one neck dissection. If you really pay careful attention to your level one neck dissection, as you kind of take this fibrofatty packet of tissue out of level one, you'll see a lot of vasculature over the mylohyoid muscles. I mean, guess what? Like the, that's exactly where these, uh, where the saliva is going to flow out of and come into the neck. So I talk to them about that and say that like once it's in the neck, it forms this, you know, this plunging granular. But the source is that leaking faucet <laughs> in the floor of the mouth, which is the sublingual gland. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's helpful, but no, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, th- thank you. That's that's um, really helpful. That's the best kinda... explanation of a pseudocyst. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Is it always from the submandibular? I mean, the sublingual gland, or are there a percentage of these ranulas that are from the submandibular gland? Technically, if you go by the definition of a ranula, which is essentially the saliva in the wrong space, it could be from any gland. Right. I think the term ranula has come from the sublingual gland because it's closest to the floor of the mouth. And, you know, if you look at the books, they talk about ranula means like the throat of a frog or something like that because it's the belly of a frog because it's bluish in color. And so I think it's most commonly associated with the sublingual gland. But if you, for, for discussion purposes, if you went and cut the submandibular duct purposefully in the neck, and let saliva just leak out, it would probably give you the same reaction. But yeah. let's not do that. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> okay, so then moving on to um, when you start talking about treatment for these patients, you know, is is anyone like, well, you know, like, why can't you just, you know, what if you just stick a needle in it and just drain it? Like, what about that? Like, maybe I don't want to have surgery. Does that work? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And if it's just purely a floor of mouth ranula, certainly I don't like push for sublingual, sublingual gland excision at the first go. You can try the aspiration and see if it works, or you can just sometimes apply a little bit of local and sort of decap the cyst. And if it just heals in a way that, you know, the that cyst stays kind of open and sort of sticks to the floor of the mouth, you may not have to have surgery. And so it's a it's a really good question. Is if you have a true plunging ranula. Can you just aspirate all of it and see if it goes away? In my experience, it doesn't. I think at the at that point, this may be a terrible uh, dad joke, but it's kind of the instead of the cat's out of the bag, the the saliva's out of the floor of the mouth, you know. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's like you know, it's done. Like I don't think there's any going back from uh, having to take out that sublingual gland. But it's certainly a valid question. And what I would talk about in the treatment is the important thing in my mind, is removing that sublingual gland. Once that's done conceptually, and if you have to go with the, with the theory, then you will have basically no possibility of this fluid recollecting. And when you have fluid uh, or component of this plunging ranula that's kind of disconnected with the sublingual gland, I often recommend that and tell patients that, listen, all of this is not going to go away with the surgery we're going to remove, we're going to focus on removing the sublingual gland, but then I may have to come from the outside and just aspirate the fluid because we know that it will hopefully not recollect in the future. Yeah, because your your sub, sublingual gland is your source. So like you, exactly. your, plum, yeah. your plumbing analogy, you know, you got to turn off the water. So turn off, exactly. still there. And it, uh, it's, it's kind of challenging because it's not an easy concept to put your head, uh, you know, wrap your head around. And uh, a lot of the times, patients will have some swelling left in the neck and they question, like, you know, did did you do the right thing? So you really have to spend a lot of time counseling them about exactly what to expect and what could be the variations of your of uh, going down this route. Mm-hmm. Are there any um, contraindications to, you know, do you ever have to tell a patient, like, I guess, you know, I guess what I'm thinking about is like a, a flare-up or... Do these flare up or do you ever have to postpone surgery? 
you know, I understand a medically complex patient where, you know, anesthesia may or may not be worth the, the risk, but yeah, I mean, um, from what I understand from your question, is there, is that any are there any content indications to the surgery itself? I mean, yeah, I mean, if a patient came to me in an, uh, with an acute infection, I would let that subside uh, before I would do this because it's hard enough a, as it is having the saliva and all the chronic inflammation that's going on around the sublingual gland to 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 make sure that you get all of it out completely. So I would definitely try to. Ha- have the patient in as uh, calm of a state before I do the transolal uh, approach. Um, also, like I think when people are uh, inflamed, uh, the ability to cannulate the submandibular duct yeah. and uh, look at the submandibular duct and make sure it's completely I- intact at the end of the procedure, all of those things become less possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard enough as it is. There's no reason to make it to add any, right. <laughs> make it harder, right? Absolutely. Do, do you um, do you uh, have a preference for your you know antibiotics to cool things off? Do you use you know ten days of augmentin or what's your? Yeah, you know? I usually tend to use augmentin or clindamycin. Yeah, those are the okay. two options. Cool. You have then, to get you have to get better with any one of those. Yeah. If you don't, then I'm like as EMTs, we need stock in Clinda, Unison, Augmentin, and Steroids. Exactly. We just had stock in that. Uh-huh. Yeah, our, our go-to go-to yeah. medications. Okay, great. So let's let's kind of talk about surgery. Then we, we've you know um, decided we're going to take the patient to the operating room. Can you talk to us about kind of the the setup? You know how how are there certain instruments that you you know are really vital to being able to do what you need to do and you know, what's on the Rohan Walvekar card? What's for, on your back table? Yeah, yeah. what's on your back table? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's, again, you don't need a lot. I do have a silendoscopy set um, available to me. I tend to tell them not to open it in the beginning because I don't want to do an endoscopy if I'm not going to be able to, um, you know, cannulate the duct. The other setup is pretty straightforward. Um, a Minnesota retractor is helpful Sometimes a Jennings mouth gag can be helpful. Um, you know, it's really a good instrument. It's meant for edentulist patients, but even for patients with teeth, if you use it correctly and without too much force, um, it can really give you a nice wide mouth opening. One of the tricks that I've used uh, with robot cases, uh, which sometimes help me just in better oral exposure, is using single hooks or like um, the fish hook retractors. I may sometimes use them to give, give me a retraction of the buccal mucosa just so I can get more light in. But that's just, you know, uh, case by case dependent. But other than that, uh, Colorado tip bovi, I find that the angle tooth forceps from the silendoscopy set are quite helpful because uh, in terms of just grabbing the sub, sub, sublingual gland, uh, but you don't have to have them. And then, of course, if I do plan to cannulate the duct, then I'll usually put a stent in for the duration of the procedure just so that I can see it better. I'm th- the, sub- the submandibular duct is so closely and intimately associated with the sublingual gland. It's important to note that. And anything that can help you identify the submandibular duct as you kind of, you know, manipulate the gland and flip it over and stuff like that is, is important because otherwise you'll go through it. One of the things we didn't talk about in preoperative evaluation and uh, the sort of consenting is the lingual nerve paresis. Yeah. That's a real thing. It can happen. Uh, and uh, you have to be like a little familiar with the flow of mouth anatomy 
to be able to make sure that you don't injure the nerve. It rarely gets injured. You know, the sublingual gland peels off very nicely from the floor of the mouth. But again, it's it's important to note that you should talk about lingual nerve paresis. But yeah, I think those are the basic things. I, I definitely have a bipolar uh, on board. Um, don't necessarily need to have a harmonic. Harmonic is usually always on my, you know, on my cart. But um, for these procedures, you don't really need one. But that's, that's pretty much it. When you stent um, the submandibular duct, do you just like uh, regular lacrimal probes or what kind of, or do you use like... How do you cannulate? This? Yeah. Yeah, great question. So um, if you want me to sort of talk about like how I would approach this case, okay, as far as like intubation is concerned, I'll think about the mouth opening that I have available to me. Generally speaking, I prefer not to do nasal intubations. They're just too traumatic. But if I absolutely need to, I will consider it so that I get enough space to work. But otherwise, a standard oral intubation, a tube to the other side, I'll usually use um, one of those joker retractors or smile makers or buckle mucosa retractors, whatever you'd like to call them, uh, to help, uh, you know, just keep some, keep the buccal mucosa retracted. Uh, a bite block in place is usually a good uh, um, good enough to be able to give me exposure of the floor of the mouth. Then the, the next thing I'll do is examine the uh, papilla. If the papilla is, you know, on palpation, I can see the papilla nicely, then I use, um, there are two types of dilators you can use. One is, um, you get actually three types of dilators. So you have a Marshall dilator system, which yeah. is a um, rigid uh, dilator, dilator system created by Francis Marshall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes through a set of seven dilators, um, uh, which is, uh, which is, and the first two are very helpful, the four zero and the three zero, just to cannulate the duct. After that, I feel sometimes the Marshall dilator system is really difficult to get through because you have to, you know, keep cannulating the duct like five, six times to be able to get the right amount of dilation to be able to put the scope in. Barry Shaken uh, from Pittsburgh, you know, he created this um, dilator called the Shaken Dilator System, which is a set of five fluted dilators. Uh, those are very nice as well. You have to get through fewer dilators uh, to be able to do, do the job, to be able to cannulate the duct and do an endoscopy. But again, I think there is some value in the four zero dilators that the Marshall dilator system brings to the table. I tend to use the shaken dilator systems because, again, it's very, once you cannulate the first time, it's very easy to just get through two or three of them and you're done. And then, of course, you have the uh, guide wire system. You know, you uh, Cook has a, um, Cook Medical USA has uh, a guide wire and a bougie system, uh, which is very good. You can just pass the uh, flexible tip guide wire and then just serially dilate with um, the Cook dilators. And generally, if you dilate to a number four or five, I, I would say number five or six, you can pass a 1.3 millimeter endoscope into the into the duct. So that's what I would start the procedure off with. If I can't see the papilla well, I can't cannulate it easily, I'll just let it be. Because I know that the ranula is changing the anatomy where I can't cannulate it. And I, I, I've proven later on that it actually turns out to be true. Once the laranula is decompressed, the sublingual gland is out, I can see everything. And then it's much more easier to cannulate the duct and just make sure that the patency is there. But if I can do it ahead of time, then once I'm dilated, I'll do a quick endoscopy, just a quick diagnostic endoscopy, 
and then replace the endoscope with a 1.2 millimeter stent and just put a loose stitch in it with a 4 nylon, nylon stitch just to keep it anchored there for the duration of the procedure. There is a specific advantage to putting the stent in, but I'll, I can sort of uh, talk about that later as well. If, because I've, I know I've been talking for a while. So if there's anything else we, <laughs> we need to talk about on this part of the procedure, let's, uh, you know, definitely answer those questions. And the, the stent that you're talking about is, is your stent that you developed, yes? Yeah. Yes, okay. I mean, I use my stent. Uh, there are other stents available. Um, Shaken has a stent. Uh, through Hood Labs, uh, uh, my stent is also developed and manufactured by Hood Labs, um, which is a, a very a nice uh, company based in Pembroke, uh, Massachusetts. It's a small company, but they're very responsive. They can also use uh, infant feeding tubes. But again, like, you know, you can even like leave a cook catheter in place if you'd like. But the, the, the reason why I put the stent in is because I can, it has a flange, it has a way to anchor it to the floor of the mouth. Then I don't have to keep worrying about the stent or the, you know, whatever I put in the duct falling out every every few minutes. So I like your stent because on the Hood website, it show, has a video mm-hmm. for how to sew in the floor of uh, the submandibular duct stent. And it's got a video for the parotid stent, which is very well done and it's very helpful. Um, and I've done, you know, left in the lacrimal probes as a, quote, stent or you know, to help me identify it. And it's mm-hmm. just like five minutes in, it's like half hour, yeah. and I'm like trying to put it, yeah. it, you know, and it's just like, uh, okay. Yes. Yeah. It gets frustrating. So the stent is very helpful. And is your stent, how, how long is it? Is it pretty much the length of the entire submandibular duct? Yeah, it's pretty, yeah, I think it covers the uh, submandibular duct length. And so obviously also the parotid duct length. Um, it has two ed- ends to it. One is a, one is specifically designed so that it lays flat on the floor of the mouth and the other end is perpendicular to the stent itself. The other end has a, like a perpendicular flange which will nicely seamlessly lay flat on the buccal mucosa. So it's a double-headed stent um, and that's what the patent was you know, around. And so wh- whichever end you need, you just cut off that end and then you can use the stent. So it becomes really helpful nice. that you don't have to pull out two stents for the parotid and the submandible. You can pretty much use one stent for for two purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. And so once you've got your stents and that's just helping you know where your duct is so that you don't injure it, right? Yeah. There's another advantage to that, Ashley, which I'd like to uh, sort of point out, is that when, when you try to remove the sublingual gland, you have to make a floor of mouth incision, right? And if you don't know where the stent is, then you tend to make that incision a little bit off the like, you know, the dome of the floor of the mouth where you expect the uh, submandibular duct to be. And it what results in is like you have just a very small amount of mucosa then to sew back together at the end of the procedure. Now that you know where the stent is and you have a visual and a tactile way of identifying it, you can actually make the incision on the the middle of the floor of the mouth right over mm-hmm. the stent. Because then that gives you a lot of floor of mucosa, floor of mouth mucosa to work with to put things back together. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. On um, cell endoscopy for the plunging ranula, what do you expect to see? Because I'll be honest, I, that has not been traditionally routinely part of my, you know, plunging ranula or ranula management in the OR. Yeah, I mean, I don't expect to see anything, any sort of pathology, but I do expect that I have found that when I try to do the endoscopy 
before I decompress the ranula that I'll have more resistance to doing the endoscopy. And then at the after the ranula has been decompressed and the sublingual gland has been removed, I can you can pretty much get to the hilum of the gland. So that's like an obvious sort of anatomical stricture that happens because of the presence of this excessive fluid in the floor of the mouth or 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 just a you know abnormal sublingual gland. The other thing is that the main reason for doing the endoscopy is to make sure that the patency of the sub submandibular duct is intact at the end of the procedure. You you don't want to have inadvertently have injured the submandibular duct and not know about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, it's again a matter of weighing uh, weighing the risks and benefits. If you find that that you know you're pretty confident about the submandibular duct being intact, then I wouldn't necessarily try to cannulate a papilla that is not lending itself to easy cannulation. Yeah. And how long do you usually give your, you said, I'll kind of give myself some time. And if it seems like it's not in a good place, the you know, doesn't want to work with me, the, uh, the papilla doesn't want to work with me today to cannulate. How much time do you usually give yourself? Yeah. So that's so like good... a 10 minute decision because you've been doing, you know, you're the expert on this or, you know, because sometimes we're like 20 minutes, 25 minutes no. in. And it's like, ten... God bless. I, I don't know. I don't know if no, I can do 10 it. minutes is too long. Right. <laughs> so, uh, if I'm doing a ranula, then there's two different scenarios. If I'm doing a ranula and I can't cannulate it, I'm done. Like within 30 seconds, I'm like moving on to remo- doing the ranula removal, uh, sublingual gland excision, and then I'm going to come back to the submandibular duct, uh, duct as a as something that I just want to make sure that I can I can do at the end. And if I can't, then I'm I'm going to say that yes, like we just just do the ranula excision and and, and not unnecessarily traumatize the submandibular duct. For sal endoscopy cases, I will spend some time on it. I will try to to cannulate the duct. I spend a, at least at least a few minutes on it um, before I, I I'll say that, you know, this is really not happening. And I try to think about people who advocate that. And I think about Barry Shaken, who's been my mentor forever. And he's he always says that, you know, slow down. And, and try to cannulate the duct. Because if you do cannulate the duct, it saves so much trouble for the patient. So I'll give myself a few minutes and try a few different techniques, like maybe um, trying uh, different dilators or maybe just injecting around the papilla or sometimes painting the area with methylene blue. Anything I can do to make sure that I can cannulate the duct. If those things don't work, then I'll, I'll move on to a papillotomy. Mm-hmm. And do you, are you wearing loops or do you like a microscope? Yeah, I wear 3.5X loops. Um, they really serve me well. I think the microscope is very, res- in my my hands, is very restrictive. I, I feel like there's a lot of open component to what we do with transoral surgery. And so the microscope can sometimes be challenging to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those people who do use the microscope do it well. And uh, both their hands are free. And it really is an advantage in, in many ways to use the microscope. Mm-hmm. And so um, mo- moving on to um, kind of removing the sublingual gland. Yeah. Um, so now that you've, you've identified your submandibular duct, um, and then, then what, what comes next? And, you know, specifically when we were talking about the anatomy of the floor of mouth earlier, do you yeah. go looking for the lingual nerve um, so that you yeah, can so, protect it? Or? Yeah, so this is a good, great question. And so we are talking about essentially how do you remove the sub- sublingual gland, right? How do you approach this? Once you make your floor of mouth incision, know that you're going to have 
some layer of minor salivary glands before you get to the submandibular duct. Okay. But once you make your floor of mouth incisions, you kind of try to, I almost try to peel off the mucosa. Okay. And sort of go towards the lateral aspect of the, uh, towards the mandible. And when you kind of do that, you start seeing a very nice plane develop between the mucosa and the sublingual gland. Okay. I try to start there to be able to sort of see that nice, uh, what we call in Pittsburgh, flim flam. That's that nice fibro fatty tissue. Uh, that's what, how, how I was trained in Pittsburgh and I kind of brought it to uh, LSU as well, uh, along with my uh, other colleagues from Pittsburgh. But a flim flam is always a good thing, right? <laughs> um, but you kind of get into that space between the mucosa and the sublingual gland laterally. Then anteriorly, it's important to kind of um, get deep enough where you're seeing the submandibular duct to, to the midline, uh, like towards the tongue. And you basically go down to identify your mylohyoid muscle. Okay. And then you sort of peel that back and sort of connect it to your, to your lateral dissection. Okay. Now, you have to make a commitment also to cut the sublingual gland at some point. So remember that the sublingual gland sits in the sublingual fossa, but the minor salivary glands sort of come over the submandibular duct. So once you've identified the submandibular duct, whatever is over it, you just, you, you know, kind of, Make an incision and push it to the push it laterally. Okay, now you have basically an incision towards the midline. You have a dissection laterally, and you have you know where your floor is. So then you start start kind of peeling the whole thing back. The important thing here is that you're going to be you have to expect the lingual nerve branches to come. And how are they going to present to you? They're going to present to you in a way that they come from lateral to medial towards the towards the duct. So if you keep that in your mind, you will be able to see them much, much more easily. And there is a lot of vascularity here. You'll see some pretty big sort of uh, bridging veins that come from the middle of the floor of the mouth and towards the posterior lateral aspect of the floor of the mouth, right? And so expect that to happen. And when you do see those, I stop, take the bipolar, make sure I like really cook them well uh, before I, you know, take all of it out. Mm -hmm. um, the suction, like a pichon, like a, a pediatric cancaver suction, is like a really good tool to be able to push into this space once you find it over the floor of the mouth and to just do one swipe and dissect your sublingual gland all the way to the back. And the last part of this is that when you will, you will see a lot of this just come together very nicely as you do it. But at some point, the sublingual gland, if you look at those uh, illustrations from our anatomy books and you see the the deep portion of the submandibular gland and how it kind of sort of you know creeps over the mylohyoid muscle and then they show this sublingual gland just in front of it right in reality that's not how it is right they're almost together so so when you sort of want to make that posterior cut of your sublingual gland you have to look for a change in texture of the the glandular tissue that you're cutting and you'll clearly see that the submandibular gland is much more sort of integrated than the sublingual gland you know it has a different color to it it is much more globular and rounded uh, and then you can basically make a cut at that point and take out the entire gland 
it's a big piece of uh, tissue to remove the entire sublingual gland. So I'm glad you brought that up because it is hard to tell. I mean, it's kind of this blob and you're just kind of going and going and, you know, hoping that you see that submandibular gland and then you see Milo and you know, maybe, I think, uh, you know, like you said, they're not that common, but I think for the one or two plungings that I've, that I've had in the last couple, you know, couple of years, I think one of them, I was like, oh, there's a defect in the Milo. Okay, that's cool. We got some saliva out and we're still like, okay, where, where do we take this? Like, where does the yeah. gland stop? And so sometimes that decision making can be tricky because it's hard to tell the difference in the textures of the gland, I think. Yeah. Grossly. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a publication that we did with transoral use of robot for sublingual gland excision. It's again, like, it, I think it's overkill. I think you can, you don't need a robot to remove the sublingual gland. But in some cases, if you really have problems with access, it could be an advantage. But the point I'm bringing is that there's a video in that uh, publication, which is really nice because it shows you the p posterior extent of the sublingual gland and where you need to cut it off. Very cool. And you're, so you're peeling it from a anterior lateral to posterior medial direction. Yes. Correct. Yes. Yes. And then you're, you're, you have to know your limits, right? Your limits are going to be the floor of the mouth is going to be your lingual nerve first and then your mylohyoid muscle because it'll be on the, on the mylo. Your most medial uh, limit is going to be your submandibular duct and your posterior limit is going to be your submandibular gland the superficial portion and then the lateral aspect is the mandible so so once you kind of keep put that in your mind then it becomes a lot more easier to make a decision about where to start and where to stop mm -hmm. and then as far as management of the ranula itself i mean yeah. we, we you, you mentioned earlier it's a pseudocyst so it it's not um it doesn't have a you know a thick wall or capsule in the way that other cysts might um yeah. so what what do you do for that part of it? Great question. So once the sublingual gland is removed, 90% of the times the ranula will decompress because it'll just be right there, right? You know, it's, it's all all connected. And you, all you have to do is just decompress the fluid and you're done, right? Sometimes when the mm, fluid doesn't decompress, I'll use a, a hemostat um, and I'll basically try to explore um, uh, you, you know that space and try to pop into the ranula and I'll just decompress it mm -hmm. okay worst case massage situation massage the external components massage the just external to thing and just use it. a transoral dissection to just get into that space and just open it just let it all decompress and then worst case situation if it doesn't then you go externally take a thick uh, like 18 gauge needle and just aspirate what you can the important thing is that it's going to go away over time. Theoretically, if you just remove the sublingual gland, the body will resorb the pseudocyst over time. But you don't, you, you don't want it to take like weeks for that to happen. And that's why we purposefully decompress the pseudocyst. It either decompresses on its own when you remove the sublingual gland or you purposefully make a transoral sort of dissection just to, you know, through the mylohyoid muscle, you just point towards the thing and just open it up like you would open an abscess. Mm -hmm. I would put patients on post-operative antibiotics and steroids because it, you know, it is a it's, it is a traumatic procedure, and you don't want them to get secondarily infected. Uh, and a lot of them will continue to have some amount of swelling in the the neck, and uh, and and you have to do a lot of reassurance to tell them that it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. 
And how do you like to close your floor of mouth incision? Just three of vicrals. Um, again, it's important now that you don't have the sublingual gland in place, that uh, you make sure that you don't, uh, you know, either injure the lingual nerve while you're making those, the, the closure uh, and also don't injure the submandibular duct. Mm-hmm. And and at the end, you do like a quick look at your submandibular duct. Again, if you were able to cannulate it, you know, just yeah, take a look. I and just do sure a quick endoscopy good. and make sure that it's 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 all fine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's that's not a necessary component. It's it's it always makes you feel better if you could do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have to tell you that there was one patient who I did recently and who came to me from another state for management of a plunging granula and um, everything went okay except for the fact that we couldn't decompress all the cyst, uh, cyst fluid and in the weeks that followed it was challenging to kind of know that this fluid is taking its own sweet time to to go away and and you really I really had to counsel myself and yeah. <laughs> the patient uh, that like this is this is going to happen the way it's meant to be and sure enough, it did. Uh, but you have to invest in that thought process. That's what I wanted to say. You know, yeah, even yeah. if you've how, done how this long? many times, how long uh, would you about, wait? It took about uh, about two and a half weeks. Okay, not terrible, but still, right. you know, yeah, it's like post-op swelling, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I would have been, I would have been sitting thinking the same thing though. <laughs> like a. Um, yeah. are, is there ever a reason for these to ever go in the neck anymore? Or do we have enough uh, data where it's just like, no, you got to take the sublingual gland out. And, you know, if you can get pop that pseudocyst, great. And then we're done. Or is there ever a reason to anything transcervical ever in these? I don't think I can conclusively tell people who do a transcervical approach that they're doing the wrong thing. But I wouldn't Im- I can't imagine why somebody would if there's an alternative, because it's it's a it's a mess going through the neck, right? The best part about doing the transoral approach is you're not burning any bridges other than removing the sublingual gland. It's also the easiest access to the the most problematic area. So my answer to you is like, I don't have a statistic for it, but based on my personal experience and what makes logical sense to me, that you would do the transoral approach first, understanding that if things by chance didn't work, which would be, I would say, less than, you know, few percent of chance that this may be something totally different and you you miss you miss the you miss the ball on this, then you can always come back through the neck later. Right. So that's how I approach um talking to patients and colleagues about what are the chances of this coming back and all of those things. Yeah. And um as far as you know, rounding out the conversation, when it comes to complications, um, what's what's the most common thing that you deal with, and and how do you manage that? Uh, the most common thing is the ranula not resolving fast enough. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know. Uh, so uh, the, if you can't, you should make every effort to decompress the ranula at the time of surgery because that's probably your best chance. Um, so I would say that's the biggest complication of just having that persistent swelling and having to navigate that conversation with patients until it gets all better. Uh, the second complication is that sometimes you you truly find that the sub, there is actually a real cyst or a true cyst beneath the sublingual gland. It's happened to me a couple of times where I removed the sublingual gland and I found this well-formed, well-capsulated cyst, which I missed out. And then you have to be prepared to make a decision of 
can I do this transorally or do I need to come back another time and, and you know, approach this through the neck? So just keep that in mind. Like there's always a clinical examination scans get you to a certain point. Ultimately, when you do surgery, if you're presented with something else, uh, be prepared to be able to step back a little bit. You don't have to finish everything on one day. Other than that, the conventional complications of, you know, sub submandibular duct injury, lingual nerve injury are, are real. I, I think if you pay attention and you do your best, uh, the, it becomes very, very nominal. Like I would say lingual nerve paresis is very rare in these situations, less than 1%. And submandibular duct injury, I think if you're careful enough, you'd, you'd not injure, injure it again, I would say less than 1% to 2%. But those are kind of pretty much uh, most of the complications that I think about. And then, of course, uh, post-operative infection. If you 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 have an open kind of a wound in the mouth uh, and it definitely lends itself to having some infection. So covering with antibiotics and steroids would, is helpful. Yeah. Do you, do you give them any sort of um, dietary restrictions post-operatively because of that incision in the mouth or they just, you know, eat what you no. want, basically? Actually, like, yeah, no, not to too many dietary restrictions. I do encourage the, them to eat from the opposite side. And then, of course, rinse the mouth after with the Peridex or, you know, whatever they would like, salt water or hot water or warm water goggles, whatever, just to keep the wound clean after every major meal is my recommendation. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we sure appreciate you taking the time today. Any um, final tips or pearls that you want to leave our listeners with before we um, land this plane? <laughs> uh, well, thank you. First of all, it has been wonderful, you know, talking about this. This is something uh, which is recently, uh, it's kind of dear to my heart in terms of like granular management. It was like an aha moment for me. Like when I said like, oh, like, you know, wow, like, I mean, you know, we can actually do this without having to do an incision in the mouth. And and I, I've been surprised by the number of people who have to ask that question, like, you know, and so I'm so glad that we are doing this and bringing a little bit more uh, perspective on this on this topic to, to, to whoever is listening. But yeah, I would just say that like whenever you're presented with these cases, don't hesitate to reach out to a senior colleague or, or even a, a, a colleague who may have experience with it because it can really impact how these patients uh, recover from this problem you can create a lot of you can create a lot of um, complications and uh, life changing situations for patients if you make the wrong call and so just take a moment to you know explore what's what's out there before you ultimately present options to your patient that's yeah, it well said Thank you so much. Um, I want to kind of see if we can have you back on um, on our ENT show and our innovation show to talk more about stent development, but also the Endorse app. And it's pretty awesome uh, with so much of your interest in innovation and, you know, being a leader of it, um, in innovation at the medical school. Like, it's great to be able to, you know, not just, you know, to bring clinical research, medical education and innovation to our medical, our future physicians. It's, it's, it's awesome. So that's super encouraging and inspiring. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I would love to do that. And I just wanted to uh, just say a big thank you to both of you for doing this. I mean, this is an incredible platform and, you know, it uh, provides a lot of, um, you know, educational opportunities, um, uh, you know, to people who are listening. I talked to a couple of my residents who do follow your uh, podcast and 
Uh, that's that's pretty amazing. And so just keep doing what you're doing. And also thank you to Kieran and and uh, the rest of the Backtable team as well for for creating this opportunity. Oh, well, thank you, Dr. Errol Vekar. And thank you to your residents. <laughs> that's <laughs> having so much. <laughs> yeah, uh, they, they know they're. Uh, we are very fortunate to have a great group of residents uh, every year, and you know, just blessed to have some great people I can work with, uh, both uh, in terms of my faculty and colleagues, and also the residents. So it's wonderful. I hope to, hope they can uh, listen to this as well. All right. All right. Take care. That's a wrap. Thank All right. you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor Spurgeon Hess and Yvonne Orvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.